We're going to continue our four-week series that we are entitling Do Not Go to Church. And last week we kicked that off uh, with looking at the scriptures that show us that church is not something you go to. It is not something that you just do for an hour. That is not how the Bible ever describes the church in the slightest. And uh, for those of you who missed last week, I would uh, encourage you to be able to go onto the website and listen to uh, last week's lesson to bring you up to speed in, in what we are looking at. But as a small recap, what we did see is that the New Testament speaks of the church as Christians. It speaks of them as a body of people. In fact, a common description in the New Testament is that we are the body of Christ, that we are the family of Christ. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is once these 3,000 people become Christians and disciples of Jesus, the first thing they do is they get together. They devote themselves to being together every day in the temple courts and house to house. And they're devoting themselves to joining themselves together in a great unity and harmony together. So strong is that bond as it builds that we get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It says that those thousands of people in Jerusalem that were Christians were of one heart and one soul. That's a pretty big statement. Uh, Thousands of people were joined together, knit together as one heart and one soul. And that is the picture of what the church is. It is not that you go to, it is that you belong to it. It is your identity. It is who you are. You are joined together as God's family. And so not to think of it as something outside of ourselves. And we talked last week about don't think of this as Costco, as if you have a membership to it and you show up at your own good convenience when you need something. It is something that you belong. You are a member of Christ's body. You are a member of this family. We're using Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 to be our launching point for these four weeks. So we're just going to touch on from verse 42. It says there that the disciples there that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. And so what I've called this lesson is being gospel driven. The first thing that we see in Acts chapter 2 is these 3,000 become Christians. It says they devote themselves. And that word is very important because it means to persist in adherence to something. It is to be constantly attending to something. And so there is something powerful about the idea they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was a devotion to the Word of God, but not only the Word of God, but the teaching that that was being given from God's word as the apostles are the mouthpiece of God and they are teaching the people they devoted themselves to that. And that is a very important consideration because that is the bond that brings us all together. That is the common denominator that we all have. And consider the power of the gospel, how it is able to take people of all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different upbringings and thought processes and values and to be able to bring them all together. I think even within Jesus' own apostleship, there's such an interesting band of men that he brings together that you have one man 
who is called a zealot, who would be anti-Rome in every way. And another man is a tax collector who is as pro-Rome as you get because he works for him. And yet, despite these kinds of hostilities and differences, they come together to become followers of Jesus, to become the people of God. That's what this is, is that it is a bond that is stronger than any kind of difference or any kind of disagreement or anything of that kind. Is that the gospel is able to take who are natural enemies and cause them to love one another for the sake of Jesus. And so what we see in that is God is able to take People like us, messed up people, broken from the world, broken by sins, and join them together. And not just simply to join them together as if, well, now here's our one hour and so we're all kind of together as a group of individuals. But join them together as family. To join them together as the body of Christ. That there is a deep connection that will be had that bridges the chasms and differences between politics and wealth and social class. Between race and hatred and all kinds of different problems that our society may have. We reach beyond all of those things to become the family of Christ. I think that's what's so interesting about how the Apostle Paul used it. This is the challenge, I think, of the gospel is that he says there that we are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that is a picture standing side by side for the faith of the gospel with one spirit striving with one another. Again, the scriptures don't picture, picture us as a bunch of individuals all standing by ourselves, doing what we can all by ourselves for the kingdom of God. It is always describing us as working together, striving together. And that's why I love this imagery of side by side in the gospel. We are joined together, working for the kingdom of God. And I would like us to consider as we start this today... That if the gospel is not the basis of why we are together, then all we are is nothing more than some kind of Facebook in person. Some social outlook. The gospel has to be the basis. And so often that's, I think, critically missed. Is the gospel is the reason we are we come together, is the reason that we are joined together. It is the word of God that is everything for our joining together. And that has dramatic implications about what we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to act. That we aren't just simply joined together because, well, you know, it's the Girl Scouts of America. And so, you know, we're kind of just joined together because we like cookies. There's something bigger that is going on here. And it is the gospel that joins that. It is the gospel, something that is so critically important that God sent his son to die on the cross who was risen from the dead so that all of us could have forgiveness of sins, have a relationship with the father and one day be granted into eternal life. That is the great bond that we share. And so I think the important question for us today is really what does a gospel-driven church look like? And the reading today and the text that we're using is Romans chapter 12. Turn over to Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. <clears throat> First thing that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 9 
He says, let love be genuine, or even more literally, let love be without hypocrisy. And I think that's an amazing statement. For Christians, there is to be something that is authentic. There is to be a love for one another that is free from pretending. That we are not playing at it. That we are not acting or putting on a show. That there is a genuine love, care, and concern for one another. And when you read a simple sentence like that, I think we have to ask the question, how is that supposed to happen? How is that supposed to happen so that we fulfill what it says right here to love one another genuinely, authentically, without hypocrisy? To truly love one another. How is that going to happen? How are we possibly going to fulfill this command? I think there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't happen. I'll give you a few of why I think it doesn't occur. I think one, I don't know that we always try. I often am not interested in getting to know you. I've got things to do. I'm kind of busy. I've got other stuff going on. I just want to hear, yeah, it's warm today. Summer's come and uh, I'll see you later. And I don't want to know you. And sometimes that's just simply a me problem of why we don't love one another genuinely. is because each of us as individuals just simply don't try. And it's not really concerned. I don't really care what is going on in your life. And if we were honest, we'd just say, I really don't care about you. Now, we wouldn't say it like that, but we really don't care. We just kind of go, glad you seem to be okay. You're physically here. One of the ways that we're going to love one another genuinely is we are going to teach ourselves and remind ourselves that because we share this common bond of the gospel, I am compelled by the gospel to know you and care about you. Because God has cared about me and God has cared about you, therefore it is now placed a responsibility upon us to care for one another. And so I have to tell myself, all right, we now care for other people. And it's not all about me. And the world is not spinning about me. And the things that go on here are not about me, but about others. The same token, I think often the, the, the shoe goes to the other foot is that perhaps somebody is trying to get to know me and express that genuine love, but I don't want to let them. I don't want other people knowing what's going on with me. I don't want them in my life. I don't want to tell them what's going on. I don't want them to really know what's happening. I want to just kind of keep people at an arm's distance and just let them think, yeah, everything's fine. I'm here, right? Everything's good. That's not genuine love. That's not authentic love. That doesn't speak to what verse 9 is saying here about love not being a show or pretend or just something that's on the surface. It's to be without hypocrisy. That's why the Greek of that is so neat. It's that, that stage acting. As love isn't supposed to be that. It isn't supposed to be a facade that we have for each other each week. It's supposed to be real. There is supposed to be a legitimate, real love and concern for one another. And that requires me to do something that I feel uncomfortable with and I think most people feel uncomfortable with. Trusting other people with my life. Letting other people in. Letting other people know the real me. 
Letting other people know what's going on in my life. Lowering those shields. Lowering those barriers. So that other people can know what's happening in my life. That we can work together in the gospel and be genuinely concerned for one another. I suppose I'm not the only one that's challenged by that. It is one reason why I have tried to share with you things that do go on in my life in a public way. That you don't see me as Mr. Impervious, who has absolutely nothing going on. And if you were just a preacher, you would have everything perfect in your life. And there's absolutely everything in perfect place. And isn't it just wonderful? No, no, no. And I share with you my trials of what happened in my childhood and my parents divorcing and all the fallout of that and the wreckage that caused. And I share with you about Grace and her disability and all the problems that we face and all the problems that happen with that and the difficulties that come with that. We need to be open and honest with one another and have a willingness to lower our guard to be able to develop that kind of love. Which means, number three, that requires time. I just can't do that in one minute or two. That requires repetition, and it requires time in that repetition for us to develop that. I don't love people that I only see for about 30 seconds. I really don't even love people that I see for 30 minutes. Uh, you know, that, that I, you know, I have a greater concern for people at your work because you spend way more time with them. It speaks to us that there needs to be a far greater concerted effort on our part to want to get to know one another, to spend time together so that we can fulfill what verse 9 is telling us to do. So let's not pretend that it is for real. So that when something happens to you or to me, I will genuinely care. That I really want to know what's going on in your life and really care about that. But that requires, I think, these three elements at the least. I have to be willing to care, you have to be willing to let me in, and we have to be willing to spend time together to do it. I think those are the three easy facets that are required. Otherwise, love can't be genuine. Otherwise, it's just a show. And so when we do come together, I think it speaks to the fact that we need to seize some opportunities. We recognize how busy all of us are and the things that do need to be done in life. But it speaks to the fact that when we come together... What we are doing is not just simply sharing the gospel. And being gospel-driven is absolutely sharing the gospel. I want you to think about how this plays out. It is not so that you will come here and we will have an information dump that will happen. And we will just load in your mind 30 minutes of as much Bible information as we can possibly infuse into your mind. And then you will go on your way and now you have much more information about God. The point is to be able to take that information and understand what that looks like in our lives. Because that information does not do any of us any good until we know what to do with it. How do I use that with the present crisis that I have right now? What does this mean for when I'm going through this? And here's what's happening in my life right now. So how does that work out? How do I do this very thing that we're studying like in 1 Timothy 4? What does that look like right now in my life? It's not just simply being able to memorize some verses and walk away. It's being able to memorize those verses so it will change your life. It's being able to take those verses so you know what to do and how we can work together. 
And so we use our times together for building faith. And that's what we need to be considerate of when we think about our time together and trying to develop this love for one another is that we are trying to teach one another how to use the gospel as well. Not just simply what is the gospel, but how do we use it? And I submit to you that is the greatest value of our Bible classes. That is the greatest value of what we do at 930 and on Wednesday night at 7 and any of the community groups and any time we get together is trying to use that time to speak of, okay, we just read that verse. I don't understand how I'm supposed to do that in my life. How do I do that? What does that look like? I've got this going on. How do I do that? Okay, the text says to honor my parents. Well, do you know my parents? Okay, now how do I do that? You know, that's what we're supposed to be doing is how do I do this? It's not just simply, okay, yeah, I know the commandment, all well and good, but if we don't do it and figure out how to do it together, then we're not getting anywhere. And so our comments in classes need to be about how we can explore that. It's not about bashing other people and pointing at other people. It's about how do I do this? It says I'm supposed to do something right here. How are we supposed to do that? And our times together are so limited. We need to really value what we just had that first hour of being able to share that together. How do I do that? How can we accomplish what the gospel is telling us to do? And so he tells us then to let love be genuine and we need to consider how can we do that? What will we do to be the church that God has called us to be? Verse nine as well. Second thing, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. There's an important reminder for us that we will hate evil. The severity of our sins can never be reduced, never be underestimated. I think that is such a a problem of what I personally observe is that we cannot treat who we are as this concept of, well, well, we're all human. So I guess we're all just going to sin. And so let's just all sin because it's all okay. I mean, that's kind of what religious groups do anymore. Is we're all just a bunch of sinners, and so it doesn't really matter what you do, and you can just be an awful adulterer, and you can divorce and remarry 450 million times because you know, hey, we're all sinners and we're all human. No. Christians hate evil, they abhor it. I love that word abhor. I mean, there's just this wretched, stomach turning idea to speak of abhorring something. It is despicable. It is something that we hate. And so the idea is that we are certainly honest about our sins. We all recognize that we are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And we recognize our condition, but we are not going to excuse it. And I think that's what's important. We're not going to excuse it. We are going to be upset about it. We are not going to be happy with violating God's law. And we will do whatever we can to stop that. We will hate sin. We will abhor that sin. And so coming together and showing genuine love and being gospel driven then is about encouraging one another and pressing one another on toward repentance and toward holy living and trying to do what we can to assist that there is a lot to be said for the fact that 
Oh, you're having a problem with a particular area, weakness, sin, temptation, trial in your life? Hey, guess what? Me too. You know, kind of like dieting, it's fun to do it with friends. Even more so with dealing with God. You're going through something, I know what that feels like. I know what you're enduring. And so let's work on those things together. That's what James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, you may be healed. What are we doing? We are praying to God for one another. We are confessing our sins to one another. There is that openness again that exists to be able to share with one another, hey, I'm going through something rough. Hey, this sin is on top of me. Give me some help. Pray for me. Give me some encouragement. And to be able to seek to nudge one another toward that kind of life that God is calling us to live. And so we see sin as more despicable as ever because of our love for Jesus. And we encourage one another to righteousness, to holy living. The fancy word in your Bible, sanctification. We are trying to move toward holiness because of the greatness of God. And by doing that, then I think it speaks to something very important is that it changes everything when we come to Christ. We're not going to look at the way that we lived our life before and think that that life was acceptable. We are trying to radically change. We abhor evil and we are trying to cling to one what is good. And so I don't come here so to say, well, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. No, it's a recognition of I don't want to live like that and I need help. I need forgiveness. And will you stand beside me in the faith of the gospel and help me to do that? That is what Paul speaks of here, of this love being tied to abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good. Now look at verse 10 and watch what he does now. Love one another with brotherly affection. The reason why I'm fascinated by that is because he just said in the verse before to love. And to me, it's almost like, okay, now if we have super short attention spans, I told you to love without hypocrisy. And now let me say it to you again. Love one another with a brotherly affection, a familial kind of love is the wording that is used behind this. And so Paul is amplifying this thought of genuine love for one another is that there is supposed to be within us that family concept. We are the body of Christ. We are the family, the household of Christ. And so there's supposed to be that family kind of love for one another. And again, I think we should ask the question, how? How is that going to happen? How are we going to get to a point where we're going to have love with family love, love with brotherly love? How is that going to happen? What are we going to do to make that happen? How are we going to accomplish that? I submit to you that what we have seen in our studies of the scriptures, and we've studied 1 Corinthians 15, and we've gone through the life of Jesus, and we've looked at his life and his death and his resurrection. I believe what that intends for us to do, one important facet of that, is that the more that I understand God's love for you and for me that is seen through Christ then that will begin to develop the kind of love for one another. You say, why is that? Why does looking at the love of God as seen through Christ deepen my love for you? 
And I think it's really an important but simple concept. It's because when I see that God is willing to love me in spite of all of my mistakes, in spite of my high rebellion, in spite of my sinfulness, that He still patiently loves me and brings me back and reconciles me, then that makes it a lot easier for me to love you in spite of your mistakes and your sinfulness and problems. And it makes it a lot easier for you to love me in spite of all of my mistakes and sinfulness and problems. When I keep my eyes on the cross, I begin to grasp and go, okay, look at what he's done for me. I think I can go ahead and be more patient with you. Now I can have a greater appeal and a greater love for you, not only because of His patience for me, but don't forget Christ didn't die just for me. He died for you too. And He cares about you just as much as He cares about me. And so how will I develop this family kind of love and family affection that He is calling for us to have as I must keep my eyes then on the cross? Otherwise, what happens is I begin to think about all the things that I need to do. I think about my own schedule, my own comfort, my own conveniences. I begin to think selfishly. I think to my own interests. It's only when I have my eyes on the cross... It's only when I'm regularly, daily, hourly, minute by minute, seeing the love of God through the cross that I will begin then to think about other people. It's the only way it will happen. We seem to be by perhaps human nature or or just our own generic sinfulness, An extraordinarily selfish kind of people. I mean, we see that. We we just live daily lives. I'm the only one who says, man, people just don't think about other people anymore. You about get run over. You about, you know, it's just like, good night. What is going on? The answer is easy. When we don't see the love of God through the cross, we think about ourselves. We just turn right to ourselves. When we keep the cross before us, Then we will begin to sacrifice for one another. Then we will find time for one another. Then we will seek out unity and harmony with one another. Then we will desire the best interests for one another. But when I think to myself and I take my eyes off the cross, then everything unravels. And it shows that we aren't thinking in the terms that Christ has given us. We aren't looking to Him anymore. I've taken my eyes off of Him. And I've turned my eyes back to this world. Listen to how the Apostle John said it. First John one verse first John four verse twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And I like to say that in the negative to get a feel of what he's telling us here. What that means then is if we are not loving one another, as we've seen here, have love being genuine without hypocrisy, loving one another with brotherly, family love, then he's telling us, one, God's not with us. And think about the weight of what John just said there. If we love one another, if we love one another, God abides with us. 
So if we don't love one another, guess what's happening? He's not abiding with us. He's not with us. This is radical to my own personal thinking because I often always think, well, love one another is kind of one of those optional things, right? You know, just kind of do it when it's a convenient time to do it. He says something very powerful here is if we're not loving one another, God's not abiding in us. And then he says even further, and his love is perfected in us when we love one another. So the reverse of that would be his love's not working in our lives at all. When I'm not loving you, that shows God's love is not at work in my heart in the slightest. What's at work is my selfishness. What's at work is my own comfort, my own independence, my own desires. It's not the love of God at work. When I love one another, then the love of God is at work and I am being perfected and I am becoming more of what God wants me to be. But when I do not love, now I'm becoming less of what God wants me to be. It's a powerful statement that he makes there. And this becomes the catalyst of what he's going to say in the rest. We were not going to spend the rest of this, but just look at it in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. How's that going to happen? How are we going to go above and beyond and outdo one another in showing honor? really says something to the effect that we really have to be concerned about this idea of driven by the gospel, loving one another. We have a common bond in the gospel of Jesus Christ that will now, because of God's love for me, propels me to love you. And if I don't love you, then it shows that God's not at work in my heart. And that's the only way I'm going to be able to outdo each other. I'm going to outdo you in showing you honor. Isn't that a neat picture? We're going to have a competition this morning, and we're all going to see who can outdo each other in honoring each other. That's a really neat way that he says that. He doesn't just say honor people. He says, I want you to just outdo each other. I mean, think about the kind of concern that Paul is describing that would happen within the community of Christians. He goes on, don't do not be slothful in zeal. It's only when I'm focused on the cross and I see the love of God That I'm not going to be lazy in my zeal. I'm not going to grow cold. I'm going to keep the cross ever before my eyes, before my heart. Verse 11 as well. Being fervent in spirit and not growing slack. These are powerful images of what it means to be a Christian. Short punches. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You feel the weight of the gospel driving love is what he's getting at here. Because of the gospel, here's how we will act. We will show a tremendous true love for one another because of the great gospel that we have received through Jesus Christ. Let me suggest then how that plays out as we wrap up this morning. So what does this all mean? I've been wanting us to see that what we are observing in those first century Christians is not an anomaly. 
That is not something that is unusual. What we are seeing is a, a phrase that I kind of put together is that we were seeing there in Acts chapter 2 that Christians are living an ordinary but gospel-driven life with gospel intentionality. And, and what I mean by that is that living for Christ together was the ordinary thing. That's what's being described in Acts 2, 42 to 47. You're not seeing it as, okay, now we added God to our schedule. And so let me figure out how I can get a little bit of God in my Monday through Friday. There's a radical life transformation so that living for Christ together now is the way we always live. Now that's the ordinary way of life. It wasn't going out of the way. It wasn't doing something unusual. There's nothing about Acts 2.42 about them devoting themselves together and breaking bread and fellowship and prayers. And it says there, this was a really unusual thing. They just kind of did that whenever they kind of could. It's just a whole new life. It's just the way it was. And so I think then what we have to see is that that very picture is that we have this new identity. That God has joined us together. And so here we are as the body of Christ, and some of us Christians are all in the Palm Beach County area. And so we are joining ourselves together in that. And we are working for the kingdom of God. And we are driven by the gospel to obey Him and serve Him. And that gospel message of love and forgiveness drives us to love one another. Let me put it one other way for you. I think what we need to consider is that then serving one another is the Christian norm. What we're seeing in Acts, what we're seeing in Romans, what we see throughout the Scriptures is serving one another, doing good for one another, honoring one another, excelling with one another, This idea of being together was the norm. It was not unusual. It was not something that was off the wall or on occasion. What they were doing was they were living the gospel. And I feel like for myself what I've done is I've often compartmentalized. Right now is God time. It's Sunday. Monday's work time. Monday night is family time. Monday afternoon is homework time for the kids, school time. Then there's vacation time. And there's all these different compartments. I want us to consider what the scriptures show us is that there's no such thing that everything is the gospel. There's not, well, now it's no longer time for God, it's time for me to have a vacation. Uh, There's no gospel time right now because I'm at work. No gospel time right now because I need some recreation time. I need some downtime. I need some me time. I need all these different times in my life. There's one time. And it's gospel time. And it's a picture for us that that gospel time now changes everything about how I live. Gospel time means that changes how I do my work. And that changes how I do my family. And it changes how I do my vacation. And it changes how I do my recreation. 
And it changes every single aspect. That God is not a compartment over here, sitting by itself, that we attend to every once in a while. It is the mission of God that we act and live as the body of Christ. To have family love for one another. That cannot happen by accident. That can only happen when we focus strongly on the gospel and focus strongly on what God has done for each one of us and then turn and recognize that God has called us to exemplify that love to one another. We are called, commanded, and it should be our highest joy to want to show the deepest love the most self-sacrificing love we can give for one another. If we do not love the brothers, and the love of God is not in us. Pour your song books out. We'll sing an invitation song. And we are inviting you to see the great love of Jesus and how radically that changes life. How radically that should cause us to look at our life not as merely an individual, as a Christian, now serving God alone. But a call to togetherness, a call to a new identity. Now we are God's people. Now we have been brought together into a glorious picture belonging to his kingdom. That we are built up as spiritual stones in this glorious temple of God. We are joined and knit together in that. Every part doing its share, belonging as members of a body. That is a great thing to belong to. We live in a world right now that desires to belong to something. It's been that way, especially for the past few decades. I think almost every TV show is about some kind of community, usually a community of work. There's some kind of great belonging, and we have an identity because we work together. And so it's a drama or a sitcom of some kind about how these people interact at work, because isn't it great to belong You belong to something far greater. You belong to something far better. You belong to something far more glorious. You belong to the body of Christ. And that is where you find your true identity. That is who you are. And God has given you that through the great gospel as we see through the cross. As we sing this invitation song, if you're ready to come to Christ and belong to Him, to turn away from your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, in doing so, your sins are washed away and you are joined to the kingdom of God. You are joined to His glorious body and you are given a new identity. It's a glorious one and we beg you to come now while we stand and while we sing to receive that.